Proctor and conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Euroclosure is coming up in Bratislava, Slovakia from October 25th and 26th. Euroclosure offers a great mix of experienced closures and new adopters, and everyone can find something to suit their needs. Visit euroclosure.org to find out more, register, or sign up for their mailing list. The 2016 edition of Scala.io is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala.io is a non-profit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. CodeMesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit CodeMesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Most speakers have been announced, and this year's lineup looks really solid, so do check it out. ScalaWave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Gdansk, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, ScalaWave is created to build a network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for their newsletter updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The unconference brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked in the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. The 2016 Closure Cons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st through the 3rd. Closure Cons is the original conference for Closure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening in the language, community, and within organizations using Clojure. Visit 2016.closure-cons.org for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a -a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisp, Clojure, and many other merging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle the challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure you keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and to keep updated as information becomes available. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Matthew Butterick. Matthew, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hello, this is Matthew Butterick. I am a typographer and writer and programmer living in Hollywood, California. I have a website called practicaltypography.com, and the functional angle is that I built this website using software called Pollen, which is a language that I built with the Racket programming language, a wonderful system that I've been using now for a few years. And my next project is a book called Beautiful Racket, where I'm trying to to spread the love, spread the joy of making languages with Racket. Beautiful Racket is going to be a book about making languages with Racket, small languages like domain-specific languages or bigger ones. So that's me. And I came across your site a while ago. I'm not quite sure what it was, if it was a past episode with either Matthew Flett or Matthias Fleissen or some way or else, but then you reappeared back on the radar as a reminder via a recent episode of the Cognicast with Craig Andera and Sam Tobin Hochstadt, and I think he mentioned you, so reminded me, but I wanted to get you on because you consider yourself a typographer, you don't consider yourself a software developer. And the fact that you're picking up Racket and using Racket in your day-to-day work to get your job done for writing these books and creating a whole ecosystem around stuff for you to use became an interesting perspective. So I wanted to get your 
overview, rationale, reasoning, etc., and kind of dig into Racket for someone who doesn't consider themselves a software developer as their primary position of what they do. Well, thank you for having me, and I'm I'm always happy to represent that slice of the population. <laughs> I have a joke with the Racket guys and gals. For those who, who are unfamiliar with Racket, who are, might be listening, Racket started about 20 years ago as a PhD project between Mr. Matthew Flatt, who is a student of Matthias Felizen, and Robert Findler. And they wanted to make an implementation of Scheme that would be suitable for teaching students how to program. And they didn't like any of the available options. And you know, as programmers do in this situation, they said, well how hard could it be to make our own? And thus the, the snowball started rolling downhill. So for its first, however many years, 12 or 15 years, it was an implementation of Scheme and it was called Scheme. And about five years ago, they realized that they had really added in so many other groovy things and it was becoming less Scheme-like. And of course, if you're making a Scheme, you have to adhere to the official Scheme specification and they wanted to unbind their hands, so to speak. So they changed the name to Racket. Racket still supports the scheme standard, the scheme language inside it, but it is now, it has a sort of uh, broader ambit, if you will. And one of the things that they have really invested in as, and again, it's, it's also attracted not just, I mean, they use it to teach students, but it's also a big platform for computer science research, programming language researchers. Many, many of the people associated with Racket are graduate students or PhDs. So I come into this mix. I've done a lot of programming in my career, though I have never held jobs as a programmer. It's always been a skill that I've kept that I use in my, my other projects. But to come into this community of really, really big brain people. So I kind of have an ongoing joke about, you know, I'm not on your level, but you know, I get a lot of things done with Racket. I'm, I'm and I always think it's interesting to talk to people who don't consider themselves software developers, but still do a lot of software development to get their job done because it's a vastly underrepresented field in the fact that there are a bunch of people who crank out all kinds of complex software in Excel or R or any of these other languages or Python being scientists needing to analyze their data and it's interesting to see people picking it up and especially with Racket. So how did you kind of pick up software from your typography? We covered this a little bit just back and forth and sending this call up in the pre-show. So can you dig in for the listeners about how you got exposed? You know, it's funny you mentioned about people who are not programmers in the sense of career programmers. I think that probably means that it makes me one of the happiest programmers in the country because the only programming I do is in support of the projects that I want to do, thing one. And thing two, because most, well, the Racket software has been a little different, but most of the software that I've made in my career has not been for public consumption. So all the ugly stuff about you know, the extensive test suites and the documentation and this and that, I can just kind of skip that, right? So it's, I can do the fun stuff mostly. Now, of course, the moment you turn and start releasing software to the public, you have to get more disciplined. And I have done that as well. And now I, I do share my software. The Pollen language that I've made is available. It's a you know, LGPL library. And there are folks out there using it. We have a little mailing list. They show me all the neat things that they're building. So I kind of wipe my forehead with relief that I've made something that doesn't demolish everyone's projects. But to answer your question, I started my career... Uh, 25 years ago as a type designer, designer of digital fonts, which there are a lot of people who do that today, but 25 years ago was somewhat more novel. And I had dabbled in programming, but when I started getting into type design, you can imagine a font, there's lots of characters, hundreds, there's lots of details to manage, and it, it becomes apparent that the usual programmer's motivation, right? You're lazy, you, you don't want to be bored by another repetitive task. So you think, geez, I've done this for three days. Maybe I should just write a program to do it. My big first, and at the time it was a little harder to program, right? Because we're in the, the mid-90s with our Macintoshes. There wasn't any Perl. There wasn't any Python and, and any of that. So my first big programming language was C. So I went on, and of course, there was no internet either. There was no Stack Overflow. So I got a copy of, I think it was C Programming for the Mac. It was a book that everyone had. And the little Kernhan and Ritchie uh, book too, which is a beautiful book and actually a, a big influence on my 
a book that I wrote called Typography for Lawyers a few years ago, but we'll get to that. And with those books, I made my first program. It was a graphical program. It used a, you know an object framework to manage the GUI, and it was to manage this task called kerning, which is a very silly thing. But in typography, you design a letter. People can kind of see that there's a black shape. And then you also set the width of the letter so that when you put letters next to each other, they form a line. Okay, that makes sense. But then you have these exceptions because you have weird letters like capital T and capital A. And if you just put them together normally, they look like they're too far apart. So you have this task called kerning, which is where you kind of go through and you look at these exceptional pairs and you adjust their spacing. So at the end of every font project, you would go through and do this kerning. And this was everybody's least favorite project in type design in the 90s because it just was so boring. You would just have to literally go through and look at every pair. And there was no way to copy and paste, even if you know, there were similar letters, like you know, obviously you a capital A, it's the same as a capital A with an accent over it, so you'd want them to kern out the same way. So noticing this problem, I made a graphical tool that essentially automated a whole bunch of kerning tasks and instantly became a hero among the, the incredibly small type community that, that existed. But it was a great taste for the future, though, of saying, hey, here I am. I don't think of myself as a programmer, but if you want to save the labor bad enough, you will get that motivation to go out and learn what you need to learn in order to save the labor. And that's really been a thread that's continued on. So later on in type design, you know, C fell out of favor because who wants to do everything in C? But Python is a language invented by a gentleman named Guido van Rossum. And Guido van Rossum's brother is a gentleman named Hoost van Rossum. And Hoost and his partner, Eric van Blockland, were type designers. And I knew them back when I was starting out. They were starting out, too. And Eust and Eric were really big on two programming languages, the first being PostScript. They were the original PostScript hackers. And the other one was Python. And they were using Python not just before most people were using it, before most people had even heard of it. And they were using it to trying to figure out how to automate more tasks in type design. And later on, they sort of fully integrated Python with the tool chain and, and to even today. And that was about 15 years ago that they did that. So from then on, continuing till today, pretty much every type designer who does not want to be bored to death by their work has learned enough Python to be able to do some scripts to <laughs> lighten the load, including me. I have a whole Python library that generates all the fonts on my website. So that's fun. And so that was sort of the second generation. But then we arrive at practicaltypography.com, which was really my the thing that made me want to learn Racket. Because I had done a lot of web development starting really at the dawn of the web, right? Around 1995, I went to San Francisco to be a web designer, which, of course, was a, people think of it now as, oh, so you went to San Francisco and you sat in an Aeron chair and you drank Keurig coffee pods. And no, it wasn't like that because there was actually no job for a web designer. You just kind of everybody went there and thought, well, this seems like a good idea. Hopefully things will work out. And of course, I looked around and said, geez, this web, there's no bandwidth. There's nothing but typography. So if anybody can help make the web good, it's somebody who, like me who knows a little bit about typography. So that was my theory of the case. But of course, through the, the web development era, I got to use all the terrible tools. And web developers, interesting, never really came up with, I mean, there's all sorts of strange templating systems and content management systems, but they're very complicated. And as I sat down to think about practical typography, I realized that I was sort of, though I really wanted to make this website nice, I was just filled with dread at the tool options that were available. And really, for the super duper power user web developer, the, the tool of choice was still just open up a text editor and do things by hand. And I thought, oh God, that just sounds terrible. I'm really sick of writing angle brackets. So I started thinking about, well, what would it mean to have almost a programming language that was devoted to this task of making web pages that sort of understood web pages in its bones? And not, I'm not talking, I mean, I understand that there are templating systems that sort of let you drop a limited number of expressions into an HTML template, but I really wanted something that could work at a higher level of abstraction, thing one. And thing two, that allowed 
any kind of programming you want, which was also a frustration with these template systems, is that they really only exposed often a very limited subset. Even the nicer ones, I you know I tried some of the Python ones like Bottle and Flask and Django, right? Django is very nice, but very complicated. Bottle is very nice. But again, you always feel like you're writing Python and there's this sort of impedance mismatch because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book here that's going to be online. I sort of want to be able to have it look like text. So there is this sort of impetus of how do I get the sort of markup feeling but also simplify and not have angle brackets. Oh, of course, I went through a phase of trying to do all this. This is the low point, really, before I saw the light. And a lot of people can relate to this. If you, you start trying to do things in XML and then you find out about XSLT. Proctor, have you used XSLT? Yeah, I've had to use it a number of years back doing some printing of XML stuff into PDF generations. Yeah, your phrase says it all. I've had to use it. I think the idea of somebody choosing to use it who has any other choice is, is remarkable. So I even got as far as, as trying this out, and I thought, man, this is awful. This is awful. This is really the worst. This is just sucking my entire enthusiasm for this project. So with that in mind, I started prototyping. I mean, this was just, I started prototyping this language that I wanted in my, that was in my head, and I sort of figured out how to write a, a little interpreter in Python that would take the source code and do what I wanted and turn it into HTML. And it, it was so complicated. You remember that movie Iron Man, the first Iron Man, where Robert Downey is in the cave and he's like making the first Iron Man suit out of lunch boxes and garbage pails and things? That it was it's that feeling, which is a great feeling. I feel like that's one of the best movies about programming ever because I think when you're when you're learning about something and making that first prototype, you know, that great feeling of it's complete garbage, but you sort of feel like when you can feel that you're making progress and that you're on the, the cusp of some discovery. So it was getting there. And I thought, you know, this is pretty interesting. And it was kind of working. I said, but there's got to be an easier way. And I started scouting around and I found Racket. The way I found Racket in part was seeing something online, some blogger, programmer mentioning about the connection, the secret connection, which I know some people say is overstated, but the connection between Lisp and XML, that essentially Lisp uses these things called S expressions, and that XML is essentially nicely disguised S expressions. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And it kind of made me wonder, well, maybe Lisp would be a good choice for this project because I'm trying to get to something XML-ish. You know, HTML is kind of similar, the uh, tags and so on. Maybe a Lisp language would be good for this. And that took me to Racket. So when I started with Racket, my expectations were very small. I was just sort of hoping to automate one little portion of my junky Python-based DSL. And then, of course, as I explored Racket, the, it started to dawn on me that really I should just move a few more parts into Racket. And actually, maybe I should move all the parts into Racket. And uh, the real killer feature of Racket is, and I, I never used Common Lisp or, or Clojure. Racket is really the first. I didn't use Guile. I didn't use Chicken Scheme. Sorry, everyone. Maybe they're great. But the reason I stopped at Racket was two reasons. One, because Racket has all these facilities for building DSLs in new languages. That's actually part of its, its designed purpose. So that's kind of nice. So that was a come-hither moment. And the other one, and this was really the killer feature, is that it has this text-based dialect called Scribble where it's almost similar to LaTeX, where it lets you embed arbitrary code in a plain text document instead of the usual hierarchy we have, right, where we have a file of source code that we embed text strings into. And the cool thing about Scribble is that it just it expands into ordinary Racket code. Anything you can do in Racket, you can also do in this Scribble dialect. And I thought, well, this is wonderful. I'm going to go back to what I was saying before how I had been frustrated with all these template systems that exposed a little bit of functionality, but never as much as you wanted. And the whole idea with the Scribble system is like, no, have the whole language, do what you want. So that's when I was off to the races. So from there, I started, again, I took my junky Iron Man suit and tossed it to the curb and started rebuilding everything in Racket. And stuff clicked together really quickly after that. And I made the system and I called it Pollen. And Pollen is the basis of practical typography. And the great thing about it was learning Racket, learning how to do DSLs in Racket was a wonderful experience. So the whole 
XML, XSLT depression had completely lifted. Now I was really exulting because I was learning this great new system and then ending up with this DSL that made doing the website just totally wonderful. And in fact, I have another website called typographyforlawyers.com, which is very similar, but I've posted the source code and I'm, we'll put that link in the uh, in the notes for the podcast. But you know, I can in- invite anyone to go over to GitHub and look at the source and see for yourself that I'm not lying. This is a really tight, expressive way to represent horrible, crufty web pages. So from then, that, this was a few years ago that I started with Racket, early 2013. Pretty much everything that I do is Racket in some way because it's just so fun and nice. And much of what I do is working in pollen. So I just keep adding on the pollen as I need to do my next project. And, and so beautiful Racket coming all the way full circle, this new book I'm working on. It's even more ambitious because it's got all these new features in it that practical typography didn't like syntax highlighting and feedback forms and hey it's aimed at people who like programming so i feel like i gotta make it super sexy but there you go that's where we're at so i my racket education continues and i'm always happy to uh share what i know and try to induce others to join me because it's just been such an amazing productivity boost for sure i you know one of the books on my shelf well of course i have don knuth's uh Art of Computer Programming, but I have his other five books set about tech as a typographer. I've looked through these books. I don't use tech, but of course, I've learned a lot, you know, thought about the algorithms and the way certain things are done. But, you know, to go back and and listen to what Knuth had to say about why he did it, I mean, he essentially took off 10 years in the middle of his research career to do this. And he said, well, yeah, but think about what I'm going to gain at the end. I mean, having this, he ran up against, I mean, people know this story, but running up against this frustration that as he was writing his book, all of the printing technology that he had started with was being swapped out for much cruddier stuff. And he said, geez, this is just not going to be acceptable. So he deliberately went on this detour to make this system on the idea that, hey, I'll be paid back many times over by having this tool. And so I have certainly found that to be true with pollen that I'm just, you know, now that it's here and I have it to work with my writing, editing, you know, I can just really focus on that and move through stuff quickly. So thank you, Racket. And as you were telling that story, it did remind me of a lot of what I heard about the origin of tech and the desire to have something that is printable in a format of assembling fonts and layouts and the like. And it sounded eerily similar to what you were describing when you were encountering your process and evolution of your work. Yeah, well, it's like Steve Wozniak once said when they asked him why he started the Apple Computer Company, as it was called then. He said, so you wanted to start a computer company? He said, no, I didn't want to start a computer company. I wanted a computer, right? So that's what you had to do. You know, Don Knuth didn't want to start a publishing software project, but that's what was necessary. And it's interesting to me. And by the way, if I'm mangling anything about Good Professor and text history, I know there are a lot of super fans of tech out there. I'm sorry, I don't use it. I have great respect. And it's a very interesting story, but I just want to allow my ignorance there. But um, it's interesting that it's nothing has really surpassed it. And in the, how long has it been around now? 35, uh, 40 years. And it's still by far the dominant tool for programmatic publishing, especially in, in academia and science and technology. And I think that's sort of an interesting question. Think about everything else. Everything else we use in technology has been made obsolete three, four, five, ten times but tech persists. And it's a good question. I think it's in part because <laughs> typography is really hard. Document layout is is really hard. And there are a lot of things that tech gets right. I'm not pitching pollen as a replacement for tech, but I hope to, I don't know. The idea of programmatic document preparation is a really neat idea. And coincidentally, Matthew Flatt, who is the creator of Racket, I think I'm not mistelling this story, got into programming and DSLs originally through typesetting. I believe his his father was involved in the typesetting industry as a programmer and asked young Matthew for his help on some project. And Matthew said, hmm, it involved, I think, Quark Express files or something. And Matthew said, hmm, well, I could write a programming language to do this. So I think the interaction, I mean, before computers existed, before computers were the technology industry, printing was the technology industry. 
right? And the most miraculous and complicated machines in the world for many, many years were printing devices. If any of your listeners know about the amazing Linotype machine or have seen the documentary on it, it's incredible. It's more complicated than an aircraft carrier and it's much smaller. It's an amazing work of engineering. And in one you know, five-year period, <laughs> every single one of them got pushed out a window and, and into a dumpster because that's how fast they got overturned. And when computers were invented, one of the first things that people wanted to do with them was to set type and make documents. So there's always been this kind of great, how shall we say, interplay between how computer technology involves and what it allows us to do in terms of document preparation and layout. And this whole idea of programmatic layout, I mean, one in one sense, it's with us because this is the principle that underlies web browsers that we're serving this markup document that describes a layout in a rule-based way and the browser itself is tasked with rendering it in the way that makes sense you know, given circumstances. And that's fine for screen. There remains, however, a demand to be able to do this for things like PDF. And that's really hard. Aside from tech and, and its successors, obviously, LaTeX and so forth, there isn't really a good system for just doing like command line PDF. So there is a companion project that I've started to Pollen called Quad. If Pollen is a way of preparing for an author to prepare his or her source files, Quad is more just a raw PDF, well, more of a typesetting compiler. The idea that it takes typesetting commands from one direction and turns out a typeset document in terms of, when I say typeset, you know, breaks things into lines and paragraphs and pages. And then from there can either convert it into, say, a PDF or an SVG or whatever. So you could think of it as almost a, a device independent typesetter. So that's the other idea that is going in the back of my mind, which is, and of course, quad is also something that I'm doing in Racket. So Matthew Flatt and I have ongoing conversations about <laughs> how to get it off the launch pad. There are a few missing pieces in the, in the Racket uh, ecosystem. And of course, the Scribble system today will generate PDF, but it relies on LaTeX. So it essentially compiles to, to LaTeX code, and then the LaTeX generates the PDF. So we're trying to just ease LaTeX out of it, and then we can go rack it to PDF, and that'll be pretty neat. And so you're making this transition. You go through a number of languages, and now you're sold on Racket. You start with the inspiration of Lisp, S expressions, similar to XML, back and forth. I've seen this before with XML and XSLT, but if I can get the full expressiveness of this. So you invest in Racket, you invest in learning Lisp. What was that looking like for you as someone who's done Python, done some C, but doesn't consider themselves software as you're coming in and picking up this language? What was that first feeling looking like as you're picking this up, getting into the community of some academics, some others who are using this for research purposes, some people who are using this for to get their jobs done in the same way that you are? How did you find that transition to making it to Racket? and being able to take the power of Racket and Lisp and build your DSLs up. And was that something that kind of was natural to you of how these DSLs fit in? Or was there still some catch inside of learning a new language to program and then learning how to take and apply DSLs into it? <laughs> yes. Well, I was about to say I, there were there were many, many moments of darkness and, and desperation. I mean, I, I depicted it as an enlightening experience. And that's true overall. But it, it's like when you go on a mountain hike, you know, and you get to that point that's steep and rocky and sunny and you're just sort of cursing. Why did I decide to do this? And, you know, part of the reason that I'm writing Beautiful Racket and that I, I sort of maybe feel that I'm well qualified to do so is that I still remember because it was only a few years ago, the things that tripped me up about Racket, the things that just made me go, ah, why isn't this easier to figure out? Because though all the ingredients are in Racket, some things are not explained as well as they could be. And the Racket guys and gals would not 
disagree with that at all. So in a way, Beautiful Racket is a book that I wish I could travel through time and give to the, the me of 2013, but this will have to suffice. And of course, there's going to be somebody else who's the equivalent of me in 2013 who's going to be discovering Racket next year, and they will have Beautiful Racket, and they'll be able to say, yes, thank you. I don't know how I would have figured that out otherwise. You know, approaching lists from XML, I mean, I don't, again, I'm not a computer science person. You know, I studied math in college, so I, I have I'm not afraid of numbers and high-end conceptual ideas and so forth and symbolic thinking and so forth. But, you know, Lisp comes freighted with a certain amount of, uh, how shall we say, you know, there's so much written about Lisp that is very laudatory, yet also incredibly vague. And I wrote a piece about this that's on practical typography. It's called Why Racket? Why Lisp? And I talk a little bit about what it was like to do research on Lisp. I mean, I, of course, ran into, you know, Paul Graham writes about it in Hackers and Painters, and a lot of people have read that book. And, you know, it's interesting that Paul it was such a, a huge proponent of Lisp and then also kind of went on to be a huge venture capitalist. And it doesn't really seem like that many people who he invested in actually used Lisp. You know, so despite being this influential dude in Silicon Valley, people are still a little bit like, I, that's cool. I'm not sure I'm ready for Lisp. But his arguments were very interesting, but they were also vague because it was, and I found this to be true in, I don't want to mangle, mangle his name, is it Peter Siebel, Seibel, uh, who wrote uh, Big Lisp book. And Eric Raymond has talked about Lisp, but there's this consistent thread through all these folks writing about Lisp, which is, oh my gosh, Lisp is so wonderful, it's amazing, it's this enlightenment experience. And then you're like, yes, tell me, how is it an enlightenment experience? And then they say, you just have to, you know, use it and find out. Or I just like they don't really put like what's in it for me now. That's what you really want to know. Why should I use Lisp? And they they sort of talk about it in these strange, transcendent terms that I felt were. So I was intrigued, as many people are, but I also didn't really understand what they were talking about in a way. Like how can a programming language be all this? And in the end, I guess I, I mean they're. Those guys are, are wonderful programmers. I'm not in their league, but I, I guess I would quibble with their discussion of Lisp because I think it's really easy to summarize the argument in favor of Lisp. And it comes down for me, it starts with one thing, and it's not Lisp is not the only, and Racket is a Lisp, by the way. I mean, if, if your listeners are probably cool enough to know this, but when we talk about Lisp, we're talking about the whole family of languages, Lisp, and things descended from it. So common Lisp is a lisp scheme is a lisp racket is a lisp so we're talking about the family as opposed to a specific language so racket is a lisp but i think it's very simple to say what the benefit is and and it's this idea of, of an expression based language i mean for me that's really what was the the magic moment to see that racket because people criticize the parentheses, but you know the parentheses, it's like Lego bricks, right? Lego bricks have this consistent interface, if you will, which is the, you know, the diameter of the pegs. And by sticking to that interface throughout the whole brick set, you can stick anything together. Well, actually, and I say that, I, now when I go and see Legos that are in the store, it's like Harry Potter Legos and every single part is, is special and you can only make one thing, which is, which is the Hogwarts castle. And sorry to be a curmudgeon. In my day, a box of Legos was just like 800 black and yellow bricks and you, know, you would make things out of it, whatever you wanted. You didn't make Harry Potter. But the idea was that everything could be stuck together as you wanted. And that's really, to me, the draw of a lisp is that... However you want to stick things together, you can, because it's an expression-based language. Everything goes between the parentheses, and then you just keep stacking parentheses on parentheses, other expressions. Like you want to drop a conditional expression in the middle of a place that it doesn't really belong. It's Well, again, I say place that it doesn't really belong. It wouldn't belong there in a language like Python, but... A lisp doesn't care. A racket doesn't care. It's like, do whatever you want. So that just, I think it's really that feeling of freedom and that sense of however you want to think about the problem, you can then immediately turn around and express it uh, in a lisp or as I do in racket. And I joked once upon a time that learning racket, it's, it's like holding up a parabolic mirror to your own brain because if you really understand the problem, it's it just it's like it focuses the energy and you just feel like bam I'm raging through it with racket and if you don't understand the problem you just find yourself noodling around but just that great sense of how shall we say I mean when, when I'm using racket I almost feel like there's just a 
collaboration, if you will, like the, the, the going from my brain into the code and, and back and that, that, that feedback cycle, it's really fun. So if you don't like the parentheses, fine, have your moment of griping about it, but it's truly an essential feature to the language. And, you know, when people talk about, uh, you know, racket or in lisps in general, not really having any syntax, that's what they mean. It's, it's that there's not all of these rules about where certain operators can go or, or function names or you know, this and that. It's just all of that stuff is gone in a list. Well, 99% of it. But so for me, it's just fun. And, and it also reinforces this idea, you know, maybe other people feel this way, where programming really becomes a way of thinking about a subject, right, of exploring a subject. And I find this true of writing as well. Like I've written a lot about typography. And to write about typography for people who don't know about typography, whether it's lawyers or accountants or doctors or, you know, students, these are all people who, who read my, my material. I mean, to, to be, explain it to them requires, I mean, it's really important for me to share a sophisticated view of typography that is not snooty or off-putting or complex. Kind of lay it out and say, look, here's how it works. I'm going to share it with you. There's no big, you know, magic secret. It's easy to get started, and it's something that if you practice, you'll get good at. And, you know, people have responded well. And I feel like that process is very much it's similar with programming, right? Except instead of trying to teach typography to somebody who doesn't know about it, I'm trying to teach typography to a computer, which is the dumbest possible thing you can teach anything to. So, of course, as we all know, and I think Donald Knuth said something to the, this effect, that if you don't really know anything until you can teach it to a computer. And when we talk about teaching things to computers, that's what we mean. We mean writing a program. So I feel like I'm teaching computers to do my bidding using Racket, and it, it feels good. And so you get in and you start working in and you've developed pollen. From my outside understanding of Racket, pollen could be one of two things. It could be either a library that you pull in or it could be a its own dialect, right? Racket has some types of dialects where you can say, I want to use this as a scheme or I want to use this as something. Is pollen one of those dialects that you've set up that it then gets interpreted into or is pollen one of just a set of libraries or what is pollen as you talk about it and you talk about using it and being able to help work with your tool set what did it wind up coming out as if you're if this is a place to help build up dsls or is this just something that's focused specifically to typography and you're taking those lessons from Racket and using them when explaining this beautiful Racket and how you built DSLs. Yes, Pollen itself is a DSL, and that is the preferred jargon. It stands for domain-specific language. Again, I'm sure your, your listeners have heard this idea of domain-specific language, the idea of a, a programming language that isn't designed to do everything. It's designed to do a specific thing or small set of things well and DSLs, interestingly, have something of a reputation as being a heavy abstraction. The idea that, well, why would you build a DSL when you can just build a library in Python to do the same thing? And the interesting thing is that DSLs actually can be more limited in the sense that because they don't have to have all of the bells and whistles of a full-fledged programming language, you can really just expose a small amount of stuff. And it's funny because I'm kind of coming full circle. I started out criticizing template languages for only exposing certain functionality. I mean, you could think of a template language in a sort of static blog system with a templating language as a form of a DSL. I didn't want to be stuck with a templating language for, for pollen, but DSLs, that's part of what they let you do. So you can expose the whole underlying language or some of it. So, so pollen is a DSL implemented in Racket. Pollen is oriented toward I call it oriented towards book publishing, though mostly online book publishing at this point. The PDF part is sort of germinating and I hope will come along soon, though I have seen a book published with pollen to paperback, which was quite beautiful. So, no, it's not a library that you import into a Racket file. And just to, again, to clarify for your listeners, so the idea in Racket is you open up your Racket source file and at the top of every Racket file, and this is different than other programming languages, right? If you're opening up a Python source file, you just start writing Python and you're off to the races. But at the top of a racket file is a designation of which language you want to use. And it starts with a hash mark lang, hash mark L-A-N-G, and the name of the language. So if you want to just write ordinary racket, you'd write hash lang racket. But then there are all these other 
DSLs and, and languages that you can invoke there. So if you want to write scheme, you write, you know, hashlang scheme, or you can write hashlang pollen and you can start writing pollen code. So under the hood, what's happening is that a, a DSL, so once you put that name at the top, it's signaling to the racket interpreter, hey, this is the kind of code that's going to be coming down the pike. And a DSL passes through two major phases of processing. The first one is a reader phase where it takes the surface notation and it parses it and it turns it into a parsed syntax tree. And then there's what's called the expansion where it takes this syntax tree, which is itself an S expression, and it expands the nodes of this tree into a full Racket program. So in essence, every DSL made in Racket is a source-to-source compiler. Essentially, you're converting whatever you know, your surface syntax is, whether it looks like Racket or looks like Python or looks like Scheme or looks like something else. Whatever you're writing, you're eventually turning it into Racket, and then it runs normally as a Racket program. So this isn't a super high pro way to do things. I mean, a, a real language implementer would be here saying, oh, we got to do it in C and we got to do this. Like, you know what? If you want to do it in C, that's great. But there are a couple big benefits to doing it this way as a source-to-source compiler. A critic of this might say, oh, this is just an overgrown prototyping platform. But here's the thing. Thing one, when you're making a implementing DSLs as a source-to-source compiler, you get to use everything that's already in Racket, which is huge. So in Pollen, right, even though it's got a different style of notation than the rest of Racket, I can use all the Racket libraries, I can use the Racket IDE, I can use the Racket package system, everything in the Racket toolchain just works. I get it for free. So that's enormous. And you don't get stuff for free when you write in C. That's an epigram that you can take to the bank. The other part of it is I forget now. Let me move on to the other part of your question. So Pollen is a DSL implemented in Racket, and the idea is that you would prepare the text of your book in Pollen, and then it kind of cooperates with regular Racket code. So what happens is, essentially, you've got your source files that have, say, the text of your book. And then over on the side, you've got a regular old Racket file, which is called pollen.racket in the system. And in there, you can have all the functions that help out your source file. So it's really a way of sort of getting the best of both worlds that when you want to use the more typical programming syntax to define your constants and your variables and your functions, you can do that in ordinary racket. But then when you want to turn and actually write your text, you can do that in the pollen dialect. And, you know, again, by the way, because Racket does not care. All these languages compiled to Racket. You can mix and, and match however you want all these different DSLs. But in Pollen, it's essentially these two mixed together. And that was what I was wondering, because that's one of the things that it sounded really interesting about Racket is the fact that it's that hash laying at the top of every source. And so the fact that you're coming in and you've now built another language that is another language as opposed to just the library and having that power, having that ability to come in, especially just three years ago, as you said, and being able to have this full grown language sounds like it gives you as any person coming in just a huge amount of power and flexibility to be able to go create these full fledged languages that you would do instead of just writing them as other functions or macros that you would pull in as a library. And you've now got the full power of whatever Racket gives you that gives you that ability to do that language switching. Yeah, I think that's right. And to go back to this idea of DSL, domain-specific language, what is a DSL really? It is a bit of programming combined with a whole lot of domain-specific knowledge. And I think that's why the idea of Racket as a tool for people like me who have a lot of domain-specific knowledge, in my case, typography, and maybe less programming knowledge, it really doesn't matter because the value of the DSL is really in the knowledge. So if you can bring that to the table, I would say you're actually 80% done. And as Matthias Felizen likes to say, the nice thing about a DSL as compared to, say, an ordinary library is that it really does provide a smoother interface if you're going to turn around and share it with people and teach them because you don't have to get into all the fiddly bits about what the API is and this and that. I mean, that's one thing I like about how Pollen turned out is that if you want to use it in a very simple way, 
you can do that. If you just want to use it as like a quick and dirty HTML notation system, you can do that. But if you want to step back and use it to create more elaborate functions and time-saving tasks, you can do that too. So it sort of, it rises to whatever level you need it to rise. And also, Pollen isn't just programming a DSL and, and so forth. I mean, it's really a way of thinking about how we should do online books. And I mean, I think there's really two principles that I'm advocating via Pollen, right? And these, again, come out of my experience for 20, 25 years doing typography and web stuff and my frustrations. And this is another part of kind of contrasting me with the people who make these template systems. A lot of template systems I can tell were, and no offense to the programmers, they were built by programmers, right? They were built by people who said, well, I'd like an easier way to do this. And this seems like a simple way of doing it. They weren't really built out of experience being frustrated with it for decades and decades. And I got to tell you, that does help. <laughs> Not the decades and decades of frustration, but when you sit down to build the tool, I really had a feeling of, wow, I just want to solve every problem I've ever had. And hopefully other people will agree with me. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to have this tool. If, if I were the only customer, that would be fine. But I'm going to bet that other people are going to agree that this is a good way of thinking about things. And I would say that the big insight that I wanted to bring to the problem of making a website is that, you know, it's it's terrible that, you know, we would edit HTML by hand or that we would edit CSS by hand and so on. So part of what Pollen does is it's actually got a few dialects. It's got its sort of main dialect that lets you write naturally and mark up bits and then turn around and sort of determine how those bits get expanded into HTML entities. But then it's also got more of a preprocessor dialect. And what I would use that for is to go to a JavaScript file or a CSS file and be able to drop into that file and also start adding racket expressions to that. So in essence, it's like CSS becomes its own. It's like a DSL based on CSS or a DSL based on JavaScript because I'm able to go into these files and, and add automation that wouldn't be there ordinarily. And the nice part is that when you do this with an Apollon project, whether it's an HTML file or a CSS or a JavaScript or, or an SVG or whatever, all of it shares a common library of functions and variables. So you can Again, you can define these over on the side, and then Pollen makes them available throughout your whole project. So for me, it's just like a very fun way of doing things because all of the awful housekeeping that is involved in CSS and JS and HTML goes away. As I like to joke, those are the three key technologies that you need to make websites, and the O'Reilly Company has a book called JavaScript, the good parts, and CSS, the good parts. If the O'Reilly Company has a book called Blank, the good parts, I'm telling you that whatever's in the blank is pure evil. And it's amazing that we went so long in the web and not really had a way of automating them. Now, somebody out there is saying, hey, Butterick, haven't you ever heard of these CSS preprocessors like Less and Sass? Like, oh, sure, I know about them. I've looked at them. And again, it's just, but why would I use them? Now I have to, I mean, yes, they're kind of cute little DSLs that let you automate CSS, but that's all they automate. Then you have this whole rest of your project that's all still a nightmare. Or people would say, well, yeah, but what about, oh, I don't know, you know, WordPress or Ruby on Rails. I used WordPress for a long time, but I also find, I mean, you talk about heavyweight abstractions. The idea that I have something that's basically a static HTML site and that I have to install a database server in order to use it with WordPress is kind of crazy and nightmarish. And against this backdrop, it's no surprise that in the last five, 10 years, we've had all of this interest in static blog generators, right? This idea of like, let's keep a simple task simple. Let's have, and this is how they essentially work, a source file, right? And you hit the button and it generates the site and you move it over. That's really very similar to what Pollen does. So I would say that Pollen is almost like some of these static blog generators, but it's kind of operating at the next level up of abstraction because it's offering everything that Racket can do, you can also do in a Pollen document. And I don't think that's true of these static blog generators. Really, they are just used for doing bloggy things, which is great, but I'm not interested in writing blogs. I'm interested in writing books and I want to have access to everything that's in the programming language when I'm doing that. And you've taken this and you've taken all your lessons from Racket and you've mentioned you're working on beautiful Racket now. So 
do you want to give a pitch about Beautiful Racket and what people should be looking for and those lessons at a high level, summary of the book, of the things that people can expect to take away from the book as they go out and start looking at it and following along with its progress and the goal of it? Sure. The book is at beautifulracket.com. I'm publishing this book in a way similar to my practicaltypography.com book, which is it's not going to be a, a, a paperback because my experience with practical typography, what I did is I said, I don't want it to be a paperback. It's just going to be online and people can read it for free. If people get value out of it and they want to send me a few bucks, great. It's all sort of strictly honor system voluntary and it's really worked very well. So I'm just going to keep going with that method. I know it's crazy on the web to just trust the public to do the right thing, but we'll let them do that. So right now, if you were to go to Beautiful Racket, you're going to see an excerpt, a sort of starter that uh, has a few sections. There's a set of tutorials, language tutorials that takes you through some toy projects making DSLs and Racket. And I know that a lot of people coming to this book will not have used Racket before. So I don't assume any knowledge about Racket. And I, in fact, assume very little programming knowledge. If you know how to write a Hello World in Python, you're probably qualified to read Beautiful Racket. But to ease the transition into Racket, I have this section called Explainers, where I give little short summaries of subjects in Racket, like you know how functions work, loops, and so on, lists. These are all, again, anybody coming in will read it and say, okay, I got it, and, and move on. The real action is in these tutorials, and just showing how the language-making infrastructure in Racket works. So the first task is to sort of show people these major components, and I sort of alluded to them before, where there's Racket has these two components, a reader and an expander. The reader consumes the surface source code, right, that, that's in the source file, and turns it into a, an abstract syntax tree. And then you've got the second part, which is the expander, and the expander uses both macros and functions to create a fully expanded Racket program. And then the standard Racket interpreter takes over and runs the program ordinarily. There's actually a third component too, which is the connection to Racket's tooling. Racket has its own IDE called Dr. Racket. And you can set up, if you make a DSL in Racket, you can optionally set up things like syntax highlighting and indentation rules and other sort of niceties that we enjoy having. Not mandatory, but again, I think it's important to share with people how these work. So I'm just trying to, to create this graded series of tutorials, making sure that, and again, part of the reason is the Racket documentation is really fantastic, pretty much the best I have seen, and having redesigned it, also the best looking documentation in the industry. But it's, it can be, how shall we say, a steep climb in places if you're coming from outside Racket. So I'm almost trying to invert the hierarchy, if you will, sort of show people, here's your entry point for getting into making languages with Racket. And also just give people a sense of, I think, making the argument for functional programming implicitly is here. Making the argument for macros is here. Making the argument for DSLs as a problem-solving technique, which is something I don't really think is out there. And it's obvious why it's not out in the world, because there haven't really been tools for doing it. And now I remember the other point about DSLs and Racket that I was struggling. I had my Rick Perry moment there. Um, the fact that you could say that Racket is essentially a giant prototyping system, which it is, but by making it easy to make languages, it also makes it cheap to make languages. I mean, there are plenty of DSLs we might like to have, but if you said, okay, now I need to sit down with my C compiler and figure this out from scratch, forget it. You're not going to do it. You know, you don't have the spare six months out of your life. But the idea that you could make a programming language, like uh, the next tutorial is going to be about doing a DSL that automates the creation of JSON files, essentially compiling to JSON. You can make automated JSON files, a DSL for this, in you know literally two hours, maybe even an hour with Racket. Now, that's a lot better than the alternative, right? So even if it's not as fast as a fully compiled language or whatever you want to call it, it's that idea of bringing within reach a whole new category of DSLs that we wouldn't have considered before because they weren't even close to being cost-effective. And if you learn how to do this stuff with Racket, suddenly you're going to see all of these problems that you can solve 
with DSLs. And it's really not more complicated than just doing it with a library or a program. It's just, in fact, a lot of times it's a more natural way. And I'm not even promoting it as the be-all and end-all. It's not the solution to every problem. But I think for the right kind of problem, it is a totally wonderful solution. And for any programmer to have this in their quiver is just tremendous. So I, like I say, I, I, and I've, I've lived the dream for the past few years. So I really want other people to get into this material and bring their domain-specific knowledge to bear. We just had RacketCon last week in St. Louis, uh, you know, the annual event where we all come together and talk about what we're working on. And it was just great to see these other folks get up and talk about these amazing problems that they Sometimes people have this sort of lack of imagination. Like, what kind of problems can I solve with a DSL? Well, for one thing, you've been using DSLs all your life as a programmer. You know, if you use things, I mean, CSS is essentially a DSL. You know, Lexiac is a DSL. MATLAB is a DSL. PostScript is a DSL. Regular expressions are a DSL. Tech, SQL, XML, they're all arguably DSLs. You've been using them, but you haven't been making them because A, nobody told you that you could, and B, nobody told you here's the tool and how to do it. So I want to really close that gap. But to go back to RacketCon, you know, to sit there, because I've had this experience with Pollen having made it, but to see these other people thinking like, oh, I want to make, there's a gentleman there who was showing a, a language called Shill, which was for making shell scripts with restricted access. And it was just a beautiful thing how he did it. And to imagine doing it in anything else, you know, whether it's like Bash or Perl, you just, it was hard to do. But when he showed it to everybody as a DSL, it made perfect sense. So I think there is so much, uh, this is like one of the few greenfields left in software development, frankly, is doing DSL work. And I'm not by saying that, I'm not saying that people don't know, have never made DSLs. There's plenty of people who know about them and have made them, but to just kind of really uncork the genie and bring a, a whole new group of people in, I think would be terrific. Because I think people are going to just you know, go ape for this. It's, it's a lot more fun than writing JavaScript, I'll tell you that. So we've been going, we're getting towards the edge of our time, but I want to give one last opportunity for you to make note of anything we didn't cover. We covered a lot. We seem to cover a wide variety of experience and motivation and what is possible. What haven't we touched on that you think we should at least bring up and make note for our audience that is something that they might want to look into further if there's anything? Well, I would say two things. I would say one is that Racket, I'm aware that my advocacy of Racket, sometimes, people don't say I'm crazy exactly. I might verge on the edge of fanboy, but if it weren't such a great thing in my life, I wouldn't be telling people about it. I mean, I really think it's fun. It's not as accepted, say, in the professional sphere as some of the other lists out there. I mean, certainly Clojure has made more of a dent say, in the, uh, what do you call it, the enterprise, because of its riding on the coattails of Java. So good for them. That's their thing. And because Racket comes out of academia, I think there's a sense that, oh, it's, it's sort of an academic tool. I mean, it's a real serious software environment. The folks who are programming Racket, I mean, and you know what, frankly, let's face it, computer scientists also in general have a reputation as being maybe not our nation's best programmers. But trust me, these PhDs are not the ones you're thinking of. These are just great thinkers, really nice people, wonderful programmers, and they're really, really eager to get Racket out there and get more people using it. So a very welcoming community. Like I go back on the list and see the really dumb questions I asked in 2013, and they were so nice to me. And I feel like almost beautiful racket is the best form of gratitude I could possibly come across to say, let me answer some of the dumb questions that are going to be coming your way in the future. I think the other thing I would want to mention is that one of the cool things about a DSL, and it kind of loops into what I started out by saying how I'm one of the happiest programmers in America because I don't have to share all of the programming I do and can therefore focus on the problems that are meaningful to me and, and the solutions that I want to do. You know, this idea of DSLs as being, if you make a DSL, you don't have to tell anybody about it, right? You don't have to put it on GitHub and do all the documentation. You can, and we'd love you if you did. But the idea that people could just take this to work and make their own DSL and thus like make their day go twice as fast. And again, nobody ever knows. Like you make your own DSL. Like this, you know, this is my JSON. I'm kind of 
going to put around this narrative that your job is to produce a bunch of JSON. It's like, well, why do you have to tell anybody? Just make your DSL that compiles Racket to JSON. You'll get your job done in half the time, and the other half the time you can spend on, I don't know, downloading uh, vintage arcade games or whatever it is. So this notion that it's a tool that you can use, you don't need people's permission, you can bring into the workplace. And in that way, it's almost like typography, because I I write a lot about typography. I create a lot of fans of typography, and people will say, oh, this is my favorite, because I talk to lawyers about typography. I'll get the email from the first year associates. Like, I just read your book. Your book is awesome. I'm learning so much about typography. I just have one question, which is, how do I get everybody at my law firm to start following your book? And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're the first year associate, okay? Your job is not to get to tell everybody what to do. In fact, please don't, because I don't want to be implicated. Here's what you do, however. You just use this material, use the typography, and you just keep it to yourself, okay? But when you when you submit a document to somebody, you know, one of the partners you're working with or another senior associate, after a while, they're going to notice that your stuff looks better than theirs does. They will. I guarantee you this. And one day they will say to you, hey, junior associate, why do your documents look so good? I said, that's the magic moment. That's where you get to say, well, let me tell you about typography. So I feel like it's going to be similar for DSLs, that the way DSLs get out there is people like me who get frustrated with not having a tool of appropriate level of abstraction to do their jobs, and they just start putting it together and, you know, pick up Racket and just start putting it together and making it better. And suddenly they're going to be getting all this extra work done. And they don't need to tell their manager or their colleagues that they're using a DSL. But I tell you, at some point, they're going to notice how good the work is. They're going to say, wait a minute, how are you doing all this? And you say, well, let me tell you about Racket. So that's the magic moment. And that seems to be good advice for everybody, regardless of what it is, to find that magic moment and wait for that magic moment instead of just trying to shove it down people's throats. That <laughs> never works out so well. So we've been talking about a lot of your projects. Are there any projects that you want to plug that we've left out and just make mention to? I know you've got a mailing list as well. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want the audience to know about from projects or anything else? I think your audience has gathered that I'm a real racket partisan. So forget about me. If you want to help yourself, check out racket. I mean, I know that the racket folks have been on your show before. So followers are probably like, yeah, I've heard this. You know, maybe I'm the one to put it over. Maybe you think that you're not ready for a list. Maybe you've been intimidated. Maybe you've heard these folks write these articles like, oh, it's going to be, you're walking on the path of enlightenment. You're a little bit unsure. Like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for enlightenment. Just leave aside all that stuff. I'm making a very basic argument, which is it's a fun language and it's nice people and you can get so much done. And I invite people to, you know, to look at beautiful racket like I said, it's only an excerpt now, but there's still a lot of good information. Hey, check it out. If, if you don't like what's on Beautiful Racket, you won't like Racket. But if it makes you curious, that's the way into the rabbit hole. I mentioned that I have my typography for lawyers website. Any of you were saying, I don't care about typography and I don't care about lawyers. Yes, but the whole source repository is up on GitHub. It's not like GPL. It's not free for you to take and do what you want. But I put the whole thing up anyways so that people can look at it. You can download it and you can use it to, to try out Pollen and basically see how I use it and what I've come up with and get a sense for. And that's all that uh, typography for lawyers website is all the source code is documented. I talk about how I change simple forms of pollen notation into very complicated forms of markup. Another thing that pollen does is it lets you do multiple output documents. There's a guy named Joel Duick who has a, a website. Uh, it's called it's not called Secretary of the Interior, but we'll, we'll put it up on the uh, podcast links. Uh, but he published this novel called Flatland. He didn't write it. It's a, it's a novel a lot of people have seen before. But using pollen, using one set of pollen sources, he created a website and then he also created a PDF that you can buy from CreateSpace. This is all from one set of pollen sources. And he also put all of the pollen source up online so you can see how all of this amazing sorcery is done. So that's if you're interested in pollen in particular. And like I say, if you're interested in this whole issue of DSLs and how they get made in Racket, go see beautifulracket.com. But it's a fantastic community and the language. And I'm just going to keep doing Racket until somebody tells me to stop. 
And that sounded like you jumped to what was going to be the next question is a call to action. Is that your call to action or do you have something else for listeners to take away from this episode as well? <laughs> yeah, I think I've given the, the listeners enough homework. Really, I have my other article, Why Racket, Why List. I have a similar sort of exhortation to people to, to try it. And I say, download Racket. And if you don't like it, let me know. And I would say the same thing to your listeners. If any of you go out and try Racket and you hate it, or you think it's just dumb, please tell me. I really want to know because I put a lot of effort into Racket, obviously a small amount compared to the folks who have been doing it for now nearly 20 years. But it's a very well thought out system. And I would hate to think that there were any barriers to entry, but pretty much people who, who have taken my advice and gone and seen Racket come back and say, oh man, my mind is blown. I'm off to the races. So again, I'm just here to share the enthusiasm. Go see for yourself. I think you'll agree. And then where is the best place for people to track you down and follow along with you? Any particular one of the websites to keep updated with your latest goings-ons? Or what's the best place for people to keep up in general? Beautiful Racket has a great feature where you can click on any paragraph or any code sample and you can send me a message. It goes right to my inbox. I use it to collect comments, corrections, suggestions. So go see the book. And if you like it, you know, click on a paragraph and drop me a line. And there you go. I love hearing from readers. They have great ideas. And I'll make sure I get all your links for everything we've discussed about all your different projects in the show notes. So people can go find those and track them down and get in touch with you. If they have something either positive to say, or they can elaborate why Rocket's not for them. It's all going to be compliments. That's what I'm telling you. People are going to go crazy. This is this is going to be your most popular episode. This is when things are going to change. You're like, I can't, you know, your, your, your listeners, their heads are on fire right now. It's going to be incredible. That sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Matthew, for taking your time. It's been very enlightening and interesting to hear all these things that, as a software programmer, that I probably don't take advantage of as much as I should that help push the bounds to just get the job done and make my life easier and deliver the value to the business and the customers and just being trapped in that one way of thinking and knowing about DSLs and probably all those places that I probably could take advantage of more. So thanks again. And I've been enjoying this conversation so far, but I know we're at time. So thank you, Proctor. Pleasure to be here and good luck with it. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.